0: We're doing a series called Meeting God in the Old Testament. And uh, we have here an occasion where someone has indeed met with God. As we start uh, each of the sermon series, I've been asking a question that I think the passage might help us think about. Today, as I drop the, the chair down, I think there's a question coming from God to us. Not one that we're asking him. One that he would ask us. Whose faith do you have? Whose faith Do you have? And today I want us to think through that. uh, Each one of us, I want us to really think through ourselves. Whose faith do you have? And I'll I'll tell you what I mean uh, by that question. There, there are some possible answers. Uh, You might be saying, uh, I have the faith of my grandmother's church. Okay, Uh, she had a faith, and she's the uh, matriarch in our family, and so all of us kind of feel obligated to be. You know, if we were asked the question, we'd say we're in the same faith as our grandmother. And uh, and that may mean that you send your kids to a particular type of school. Uh, It may mean that you do any number of things. But for yourself personally, you'd say, whose faith is it? Well, the person of faith in our family is actually the grandmother, rather than speaking about it personally. There's another faith. Well, it's probably an anti-faith, but uh, you could say, I have the cynicism of my cool friends. Uh, Now, I know that uh, at some level it sounds Nothing is ever cool when it appears like this. It's not, they're not cool. We could say you're influential friends. And once I say that, it means it's not the people who are wearing great sunglasses and have their hair done nicely. Because I reckon that there are cool friends at Chesselon. What I mean by that is there are influential people whose take on the world will influence others. Happens in retirement villages happens in high schools, happens in workplaces, may even happen in your friendship circles. And so it may not be acceptable in this group of friends that you hang out with at the moment. It may be that it's weird to be a Christian and the, the influence, if it was running in one direction, might be more towards being people who would be largely cynical uh, towards the church and towards God. A, a third option, I think, is uh, whose faith do you have? Well, my, my answer is the census answer. Uh, do you know the census stats, don't you? Do you know how, what percentage of Christians there are in Australia according to the last census? Does anyone know? You're going to love this number, 61%. That's why we see them all at church on Sunday, is that right? I think the latest stats say there's between 3 or 4% of Australia are in church on a Sunday. But 61% of us will say that we are Christians. That's what we'll say on our, on our census answers. Quite extraordinary, isn't it? So what I want to ask us today is, whose faith do you have? Do you have a census answer? Do you have the influence of your friends? Do you have a grandma's face? Do you personally have a faith? We're going to struggle with that uh, today as, uh, as we look at, this, uh, look at this question. Does the faith of someone else really help you? So if the answer is anyone other than yourself, other than my faith, does it actually make a life-changing difference? And I would answer for you, no, it doesn't. It never can. If it's somebody else's faith, it will never help you when push comes to shove. So let's have a look. I'd like you to meet Jacob and Esau, although I could have written up there Esau and Jacob. If you don't know these two brothers, very famous Uh, in the Bible, and uh, I want to give you their story very quickly. Here's three bits about them. first thing that you should know is that they're twins, and they they struggled their whole lives together, and they struggled even in the womb. And Esau was born before Jacob. Two brothers, Jacob and Esau. Incidentally, one of them was hairy, but that's a bonus piece of information. Struggle is the first thing you should know. Second thing you should know is about soup. Okay? Jacob uh, was born second, but he's a cunning guy. Esau, he was born first, and he was a man with a big appetite and loved being outdoors. He came back one day and he said, I'm famished. I could eat, I think he sort of said, I could eat a horse. And his brother goes, Well, I've got some beautiful stew here. And he goes, I want that. I'd do anything for that. And his brother, who was very conniving, said, well, if you're so hungry, why don't you give me your birthright as firstborn child? And Esau goes, I don't care. I'll die if I won't have the soup. Yeah, I'll have it. Birthright's yours. So his brother tricks him out of being the firstborn in his family for a bowl of soup. Important data point at that. The third thing that we should know is that uh, when their father Isaac, the son of Abraham, who we met the other week, is old and dying, he's blind and he's looking to give a blessing to his eldest son, to pass on the blessing of Abraham to his eldest son. And uh, he says, son, I want you to go out and catch something and bring me back some beautiful meat. We'll make it into a stew and I'll bless you. Their mum, who likes Jacob more than her eldest son, overhears this, sends her boy in with a meal that she makes for him while his brother's out hunting, dresses him in his brother's clothes, put goat skin on him so he feels ha- hairy, goes into his blind father and says, I'm here father, please bless me. And dad goes, hey you sound like my older son, come a little bit closer, touches his hands, feels the goat hair and smells his coat and goes, ah, this is, my, this is my son. Gives him all the blessings that he's received from Abraham. And then Jacob ducks out. Meanwhile, his brother comes back in and goes, Here I go, Dad, I'm ready. Give me the blessing. And he almost has a heart attack. He goes, What? What happened? Somebody's already got your blessing. It's already, you, it's already his. And so from that moment on, uh, Jacob and Esau obviously have some relational problems, as you can imagine. So they split. They take off. Uh, Jacob runs away to the relatives of his family. And Esau continues to work up a stink to make his, everyone else's life as uncomfortable as possible, basically. That's Jacob and Esau. The younger one is the one who's holding all the cards. Okay, He's got all the blessing and, uh, and he's got the, the rights of the firstborn. Well, uh, as, uh, as Jacob is fleeing... He, he uh, goes into this land and, uh, and has a vision. Come with me to chapter 28 and verses 11 to 15. Chapter 28 and verses 11 to 15. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Is he a hard man or what? I always thought this was a bizarre thing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now that is a pretty good promise from God, isn't it? Talk about meeting God. It's open slather. I want you to look up at the screen because these are about to get uh, important for us. Uh, God said to Abraham, I will give you a land I will give you offspring and I will make all nations on the earth blessed through you. Land, offspring, blessing. These blessings that were made to Abraham, reiterated to Isaac, are now being told to Jacob firsthand by God. He's saying, it's through you. You're my man. I'm going to do this incredible work through you. And as if that wasn't enough... That's pretty incredible, isn't it? So so it's like he's saying, Hey, Rob, I've just picked you out of all the people in the world, and every person on the planet is going to be blessed through you. It's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, great. Thanks, Rob, for being a good sport. Uh, Here's here's the thing, though. Once, Once we start thinking about it like that, it does sound incredible, doesn't it? Wouldn't you say? Everyone on the whole face of the planet is going to be blessed through this one person. How will that happen? Well, because his descendants will be like the dust on the, on the ground. Multiplied. Quite incredible. And then to top it all off, here's the extra blessing that God gives him. He says to him, he says to him I am with you and watch, will watch over you wherever you go. How brilliant is that? So God wraps these incredible, these incredible promises in this protective promise of his presence. I will be with you. Extraordinary. Why wouldn't you be excited about that? And so at one level, Jacob is excited about that. Uh, If we look at the next couple of verses, verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Do you remember the picture of the stairway? It's interesting, I talked about angels before, didn't I? It's a very strange picture, isn't it? The, The stairway between heaven and earth. The best I can make of it is that here is a connection. Here's a point where heaven touches earth. And the messengers of God are being sent out in this place. And so the picture is this place connects earth with heaven. A couple of things come from that just very briefly. God is concerned with the world and he doesn't stay at a distance. He sends his messengers into the world. That's beautiful. Okay. Secondly, there is actually some access from earth to heaven. Even if it's only angels ascending and descending at this point. There is access to heaven. It's not remote. God isn't distant. He's connected uh, with the earth. So he, looks, he wakes up and he goes, surely God was here and I wasn't aware of it. Uh, he was afraid, verse 17 says, and he said, how awesome is this place? Uh, not in the kind of slang of Australian vernacular at the moment. Oh, that's awesome. I think he means, I'm terrified. God is here. Or some, full of awe, okay? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Wow, pretty significant at that point, isn't it? So he's afraid, but the next thing he does, um, early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Now, something I was reading uh, through the week was suggesting that, that to set up a pillar was kind of like a, a, an obelix-y uh, thing. You know? it, it would stand up tall like this. And so it wasn't just like my pillow-sized rock. No, 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 no. because that's not very magnificent, is it, really? But that he had levered up this rock that he'd been lying on and poured oil on the head to say, this place needs to be marked. This place, you need to remember this place. This is a, a significant site. And some people have argued that he was clearly very strong if he was able to set it up on his own. Interesting. The third thing I want you to see, though, is if you'd heard those promises, God says, I won't leave you. I'm going to be with you until all these things have been accomplished. Jacob's response, sure God, I'm onto it. Well, it's a little bit different to that. Have a look at verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. I think it's completely intriguing that uh, Jacob decides how much he'll give God. Do you see that? God, I'm going to honour you, and I'm prepared to give you a tenth. Whatever you give me, I'll give back to you a tenth. It's it's incredible, isn't it? he, He sets the terms. The other thing I think it is, I've got up there the if. He says, if you do this for me, God, then you'll be my God. Can you see that? It's all being done on his terms. It's all being done on his terms. So I just want to think through some things from this, this little bit here. Uh, Jacob, uh, you might not know what his name means. Uh, his name means deceiver. Uh, can you guess why so far? Uh, Bethel, the name that he, he gave the place, means house of God. Uh, this is a complete bonus. Uh, Bethlehem, Beit Lechem. Lechem is bread, Beth is house, house of bread, Beth-el, El is God, house of God. Cool? Okay, very good. Now we all know. Uh, the response, what's his response to being in Bethel? Well, his response is, I'm going to put up a memorial and I'm going to move on. See you later. If I'd found the gate of God, what might you do? I might just kind of hang around here a little bit, see what I can learn, see if I can meet God again? thanks God, checked in, I've got a stone here. It'll wait until you keep your end of the bargain and then I might come back and call it the house of God. He makes a memorial and moves on. Who's he trusting in? I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? His own strength and cunning. His own strength and cunning has so far won him his birthright and the blessing of Abraham. And he's not doing too badly, so I don't need anything else. I'm just going to keep going on my own strength and cunning. Whose faith is he talking about? Well, interestingly, God introduces himself to, uh, to Jacob as the God of Abraham and Isaac. And so I think at the moment, he would say, it's my dad's faith. It's my dad's faith. Well, let's talk about strength and cunning. We don't have time to read uh, the intervening chapters, uh, chapters 29 to 31. But if you want to find a great story about a guy who just, it's two swindlers having an arm wrestle, essentially, uh, Jacob goes to see his, uh, his relatives and comes across a man called Laban. And uh, he's almost as scheming and uh, conniving as, uh, as Jacob is. Jacob sees uh, this beautiful daughter of Laban's and he says, I want to marry her. And, uh, and uh, he says, I'll do anything for you. I'll work seven years for you if you give me this girl, Right? One of the best lines in the whole of the Old Testament, I just love it, it says, but they seemed as only a day to him because of his great love for her. Isn't that beautiful? So, so he, works for seven, he works for seven years. Now, on the night of the wedding, apparently, I, it's not all in the details here, but on the night of the wedding, it seems he gets drunk, seems that way. I'll tell you why. Because it says, when he woke up in the morning, oh, she's, got a, she's got a sister, Rachel has a sister called Leah. She's the older sister. And Jacob's in love with the younger sister, right? Anyway, they had the wedding, and it says, in the morning, there was Leah. Do you get the inference here, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, he hadn't known what he was doing. And so, and he said to his father-in-law, what have you done for me? What, what, what have you done to me here? And he goes, well, it's not right. Our custom is that we actually make sure the elder daughter's uh, married before the younger one. So we just thought we'd take care of that for you. Uh, If you want the other one, you'll have to uh, work another seven years for me. Which he does. It is a battle of swindlers. It's amazing. Anyway, in the intervening period, Jacob multiplies his wealth and riches. As he looks after this man's flocks, he builds his own flocks. And eventually he has flocks upon flocks. He has servants. He has riches without number. Laban's household is blessed because Jacob's there. But at the same time, Jacob's a deceiver. And he's getting by on his cunning and on his strength. Eventually, it gets to be too much tension in the house. And he decides, actually, I really need to go. And because he's a really nice guy, he told his father-in-law that he was going. No, nope. he waited until his father-in-law was shearing sheep. And when he was three days' journey away, he took off because he's a deceiver. Eventually, his father-in-law catches up with him. They eventually make, it, uh, make, make up. And what they do, though, is they erect a pillar. And they say, all right, I'm going this direction. You go that direction. Neither of us crosses past this spot here. Are you sure? Yeah, are you sure? Anyway, you can. This conniving kind. Of, they they settle on it and they decide that's that's it. We're, we're parted now. Then, so Jacob survived all of that. He's got riches without number. He's wandering back towards the land that was promised to him by God, and then he hears your brothers coming. And by the way, I think he's got four hundred men with him. How do you think Jacob feels at this point? Just a little bit vulnerable, I would suggest. So let's, uh, let's think about what would shake us from reliance on our strength and cunning. I'm going to put three possibilities up here. They're not, they don't have to shake you, they will, in many cases, shake us. But I think most of us will rely on our strength and cunning until something crashes into our lives which causes us to reevaluate them. Cancer's one like that. Your mortality all of a sudden is on display. Something crashes into your life. And you think, my strength and cunning? Well, now I have to go and see somebody else. And I'm sitting in a room, I don't understand what everyone's doing and what's going on. And there's a profound shift in in our ability to trust in ourselves. Another one might be, something happens to our career. You're on a path, but something cuts you off. You lose a job. You have to move, and you find all of a sudden that this particular part of who you are, this identity, this ability to provide, is taken from you. And all of a sudden, you find, actually, my own strength and cunning has failed me. For some of us, it won't be that, but it'll be something else, a crisis that comes, something unexpected That crashes in our lives and proves that strength and cunning, independence, cannot alone sustain your life. That's what happened to Jacob when his brother turned up. And so what does he do? What does he do? Well, have a look with me at chapter 32 and verses 6 to 16. Chapter 32 and verses 6 to 16. We see in verse 6, when the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Have a look at verse 7. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two camps, and flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau Esau comes and attacks uh, attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. It's his lifeboat policy, yeah? And again, what's he trying to do? As much as he can, be cunning. He won't see everything, he'll see half of it. He, he's, a, he's a schemer. But I want you to get that he's terrified, right? His ability to go, I'm, I'm master of my domain, now has 400 men marching towards him with a brother that in every possible way he has wronged. He's mortified. He's truly afraid. So there's real fear. What does real fear provoke for the self-centered, self-reliant man? I think it provokes humility. Have a look at verse 10. Oh, verse Uh, 9. He prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me. Notice whose God it is, though. Do you see this? God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me. Who's God? Dad's God, granddad's God. You who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I'll make you prosper. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. That's a stick, not a group of people in an administration office. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. Now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Guys, this is so typical of what happens when something crashes into our self-reliance. Oh God, please save me. I want you to know that in and of itself, that prayer doesn't make you a Christian. It makes you profoundly human. I'm out of my own strength. Somebody help me. Somebody help me. Now it happens that God's, God's there and, and he's able to say, well, God, you actually made me some promise. So now I'm actually just going to pull my little promise book out and I'm going to hold you to account here. God, did you, you wrote this to me. Can you see this? this is your, you've, got a, you've got a problem. Can you see these guys coming? This is your problem. So I think though, the best thing about it is it shows him humility. Actually, my strength and cunning didn't give me everything I have. Guess where they came from? Now, if we are in a different type of church at this point, I could say, okay, everyone say, my, you know, I, I won't do that to you. But I want you to think, did, did the stuff that you've got right now come from your strength and cunning, or is it the gift of a good God? Amen? That's a huge change, though. Because if it's my strength and cunning, it's mine to do with it what I want. It's also what I'm trusting and relying in. But if it's God's, I have to turn to the one who gave it to me, yeah? And so he prayed and he asked God. Something extraordinary happened in response. Uh, I love this illustration. Uh, Whether the thing that he wrestled with had wings, I don't know, but all the artists seem to love putting wings on this person that he struggled with. Have a look at verses uh, 22-22. uh, to twenty nine. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. After he would sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was wrestled. Uh, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And we go. What? What? What is going on here? They're in a wrestling match. And we immediately think it cannot possibly be anyone else other than a man because verse 20, 25 says, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, what? Now, remember I told you that Jacob was a strong bloke? I reckon he was a really strong bloke. And whatever the thing was that he met, which at the moment we don't know, he was physically, they're wrestling, he was physically unable to overpower him. That's extraordinary. When he saw that, however... So we're we're thinking, so it's a man, right? Jacob's in a wrestling match with a man because he can't overpower him. But then I want you to see what happens next. Have a look. Uh, He saw that he couldn't overpower him, uh, middle of verse 25. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. So here's a guy who we're thinking, no power here, just being overcome by Jacob. And what he does is he goes... Oh! That's unusual, isn't it? He, he touches his hip and it's wrenched and he's weakened. In fact, you can't wrestle very well if you've got a, a messed up hip. It's the part of your strength. And so he robs him right here. And how does he do it? Not through superior strength. He just touches him. And then it's quite incredible. As the day is breaking, I think we see, first of all, that Jacob is maimed. His strength is robbed in the wrestling. He's maimed. Whoever it is he's wrestling with takes his strength from him with a touch. He's maimed. But then something even more amazing happens. Uh, the man says, let me go for his daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. I love him. He's so persistent. Not, even though I'm just... I imagine he's now just hanging off the bloke, but he's not letting him leave. A bit, bit like my kids sometimes, they, they'll grab around your leg, you know, and you kind of drag them across the floor. I imagine he's like that, I'm not going to let you go. Even though I'm in pain and agony, I don't have any strength, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? And Jacob, he answered, which means what? Do you remember? Deceiver. What, what's, what's your name? Deceiver. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. He's maimed, and now he's named. You, you are not deceiver anymore. That doesn't define who you are. Your new name is Israel. Your new name is Israel because you have struggled with God and humans and have overcome. Yeah, yeah. So, so who gets to touch a man and disable him? Who gets to name a man? Who stays when he's pleading for a blessing? It's not another man, is it? It can't possibly be. And so Jacob said, please tell me your name. You've just given me a new one. Can you tell me your name? But he replied, why do you ask my name? So he blessed him there. The one he was wrestling with blessed him. It wasn't just a good idea, it was from God. And we know that it was God and not just a man. Have a look at verse 30. I want you to see this. Here's the evidence. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Jacob says, I met God. And he means it not just in a metaphor, he's got a wrenched hip. I imagine that he, re- that he limps for the rest of his life. As a permanent reminder, you will not rely on your strength. He is weakened by God for his good and for his humility. And so he limps off to meet his brother. It's quite extraordinary and God is very gracious to him and his brother is really well disposed to him and they don't kill each other and they have a wonderful reunion and they embrace each other. Uh, You saw that he sent all that cattle up ahead just because I did my homework. I tried to work out how much it would cost to send that cattle today. I don't know how much the trucking would cost but I put the market value at $411,000. The stuff he sent ahead to his brother. So he said, brother... I'm terrified of meeting you, but here's 220, here's here's 50, here's 30, here's 20. Here's 400 grand's worth of blessing. Please don't kill me. And because God had humbled him and looked after him, because he actually acted probably wisely, his brother didn't kill him. And Jacob and Esau are reunited before Jacob continues to the promised land. What do we see from this account? Well, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. Israel means struggles with God. Now, it's so important to see this. His name from now on will be, I am the one who struggles with God. And that name hangs over the people of God. What is the name of the people of God? Strugglers. You are wrestlers with God. That is the name over the whole of Israel's history from now. Wrestles with God. Struggles with God. A God you'll put your hand to. An encounter with this living God will change your life. You won't escape unscathed. You cannot walk away proud. Your name wrestles with God. Peniel means face of God. The response, well, he actually stops and he worships. He worships God and we'll have a look at that in a second because I believe he's now decided that this is the God who is his the God I got to grips with, the God who wounded me, is actually the God who is my God. It's his faith now. Have a, have a look at 33, 18 to 20. Have a look at this. After Jacob came from Padam Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan, that's the promised land, and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he brought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. Then he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. The mighty one of Israel. And our tendency is we'll read it, the mighty one of the people of Israel, don't we? Isn't that what we read? He's saying, no, no, the mighty one of Stuart, the mighty one of Rob, the mighty one of Joan. Can can you see this? Who is this God who I'm worshipping? The mighty one of me, my God. He's finally owned it for himself. I think it's profoundly beautiful. I want to take you, though, from there to here. So we get from this Old Testament story. Here's the Old Testament laid out like this. Here's the New Testament. We saw that we're moving from creation to new creation. We've seen sin marking that story. We've seen the promises made to Abraham have now been reiterated to Jacob, his son. But we want to work out, how do we get all the way across to Jesus in the New Testament? Well, here's what I'm proposing I want you to open up in the New Testament, uh, John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. John chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 47 to 41. Very briefly. John chapter 1, verses 47 to, 40, uh, to 51. It's on page 1063, if you've got the chair Bibles. I'm not sure what size the um, large print. John chapter 1, and verses 47 To 51. This is right at the start of Jesus' ministry. Okay, he's just starting out. And uh, he meets a man called Nathanael. Verse 47 When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, that is possibly one of the most cryptic bits of the New Testament until we have this story in mind. I want to very briefly connect Jesus to Jacob for us. And then I want to say to us, is it your faith? Have a look at this. I want to suggest to you that in the story of Jacob, there was a gateway and there was also a wrestling match. The gateway was called Bethel, the house of God. The wrestling match happened at Peniel, the face of God. That's what that meant. What I want to suggest to you that Jesus is saying here is, Jesus himself is Bethel and Peniel. He is the gateway to heaven and he is meeting God face to face. When you meet Jesus, you meet God face to face. When you meet Jesus, you meet the one who would serve as the stairway from heaven to earth, the one on whom the angels would ascend and descend because Jesus in himself would connect us with God. Jesus is Bethel. And penuel together. What does that mean for us? It's all about Jesus. Here's the thing. To get the blessing from Jesus, guess what? You don't have to wrestle. You don't have to scheme. But you have to acknowledge that you're weak and you need saving. See, Jacob was rich beyond all number. But it wasn't until he faced the prospect that he would lose everything that he cried out to God. Jesus stands to forgive us, give us a new hope, give us a fresh start. But it will only be possible for us if we'll call out for it. He stands ready to save the weak, but He will leave the strong to their own devices. So, whose faith is it for you today? Is it self and strength? Self and strength. Or is it wrestling and weakness? I acknowledge my weaknesses. I acknowledge everything is from your hand and not just from my own strength. Or are you saying, I own it, it's mine? Why would I ask you this question? Because if you are relying on yourself, I can guarantee you your life will have fear in it of loss. And you will be trying to work out some way to manipulate God, money, people to give yourself security promise you fear the way you can know you're trusting in the living god is because the the road through weakness and wrestling is to peace jacob went in front of everything else that he'd been sending and went and fell before his brother because he knew that the god who would never leave him or forsake him had not left him or forsaken him and so he cast himself on the mercy of his brother because he knew god was there with him How will you know if you're trusting in yourself or in God? The only path to peace is trusting in him. And so what I want to ask you this morning is this. If you're trusting in your own strength, are you certain it will hold? Are you certain your strength will hold? I want to ask the the people who've been trusting in God for a long time, Are you too good to be called Israel? Will you resist the wrestling, the path to strength that comes through weakness? Are you too good to be called Israel? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that those here who know that they're trusting in things and resources that are their own, Heavenly Father, I pray that the paralyzing fear of losing that might cause them to call on you and find the offer of hope and faith and forgiveness. I pray for those of us who live a pretty Christianity that wouldn't want to get into a wrestling match with God. Father, I pray, even as I'm experiencing it at the moment, that the wrestling and the exposing, exposing a weakness may actually cause us to lean heavily on you, Father. Father. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't be too proud to be weak. I pray that we wouldn't be too proud to call on you and to find you to be our strength. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we might proudly bear the name Israel as people who struggle with you. We ask these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.